This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Once again, my good friend, Jim McKelvey, the co-founder of multi, multi billion dollar company Square. Square, of course, provides the payment processing for something like 30% of US businesses. So Jim always has his finger on the pulse of the economy and what's really going on, not just what you're reading in the headlines. But more importantly, he's also deputy chairman of the Federal Reserve. So I get to ask him all the questions I've been wanting to ask about what the heck the Federal Reserve is doing for the economy, just so I could understand a little better. And also, when Jim and I first started this podcast, we were just randomly chatting, and he has some very interesting data to talk about that he found out from a company he invested in, data about the presidential election that kind of surprised me. And we talk about how to innovate a 3,000-year-old industry, and Jim has done that as well. So here's the podcast. Well, well, what what other projects are you working on? Um, so I'm making new drinking glasses. I love it. In the it. studio. These are, I wonder if I could get one. Um, you want to hold on? Yeah, yeah. Let me go, let me give one of these things. Hold on. Now, did you, uh, did you blow these in the glass blowing factory? Yes, yes, these are these are made in the studio. And I've I had this idea about seven or eight years ago, but the idea is it's a glass, but it's half collapsed. I like that. And you know, the idea is that you've got some sort of you know vessel that it just you it just looks unique. I mean, I've never seen anybody do this. I've seen, you know, the the, the drinking glass has been done for you know thousands of years at least. Yeah, so this is really interesting. So, and this goes along with your theories on innovation. So, here's an industry that's been around for five thousand years. Yeah, <laughs> and you just innovated in it. Like there's this, there's colorful and creative glasses, but I've never seen like a warped glass like that. Like, what's do, do, so thinking about it in terms of like architecture? Does does it have to be functional? The changes you're making, or is it just purely artistic? No. So to me, this was a rejection of. Uh, it, it it started really, f it, it, there, were, there were a couple of things that collided in my head. For, I had the idea six, seven years ago because I, I wanted, so I, I have a friend who's a real um, uh, scotch snob, okay? And he's a guy like, before he'll give you a drink, he'll give you a lecture, mm. right? There's always this lecture that precedes the beverage. And he's still right? your friend? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. But he's a Scotch snob, right? Okay. So you know, and I drink a little Scotch. I'm not very good with alcohol, but like I drink a little bit. Of, I you know, I'm kind of come from that part of the world, so I figure I have to you know support the the, the relatives. Um, and when he the, the the cool thing about drinking with him is that it is such a singular experience with him. Like you don't talk about anything unless it's the Scotch. You don't talk, and and and, and he has this whole focus that he brings to the, uh, to the activity that makes the activity way more enjoyable than if I was just to go home and, you know, pound a shot. So um, 
I thought about it and, and I thought, you know, I wonder if I could make a drinking glass that was so interesting that it would draw your focus back. Because, you know, normally, you know, you just drink without thinking about it. You know, I, right. I, you know, yeah, that'll sound great on your podcast. But I mean, like that act is completely, I can do that in the, in the, in the d- pitch dark. I can do it. Um, so I wanted a glass that you couldn't drink in the dark, like that, that would demand its attention to sort of bring your focus back down. So, so there's a functional purpose, like it, there's a reason to be. Yeah, I wanted the object to get more attention. And I just, something that I've, I've had thousands and thousands of glasses in my hands over the years and I re- re- remember very few of them. And I thought, what if I could make one that was memorable? So I just wanted to do something that hadn't been done. And then I, I, I sat with that idea for probably six years. And then my studio just started um, importing this Swedish crystal, which I don't know if you know anything about glass chemistry, but the, the way glass is made is this really arcane process. Um, that involves all this toxic crap. But they basically replaced the lead with barium, which is safe, but still gorgeous. So it's like the sparkle of the old sort of deadly lead crystal, but none of the deadly. Hmm. And I got this crystal and it's the first time in my life I've been wanting to work with this stuff. And this stuff is so sexy. I, I never made clear. I, I, I've, you know, blown glass for 30 years with color and now I'm just clear, clear, clear. So, so what's, that's what I've been working on. What's the benefit texturally of the barium? So it's, uh, it increases the, um, the, the coefficient of refraction. So it's, it gets it more sparkly. It also makes the glass super clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't understand all the chemistry of it, but uh, it is a gorgeous thing to look like. If you, if you take a normal glass and you put this crystal next to it, you will always pick the crystal. Um, and and what are you going to do? You, you think you'll make a, a a big glass line, or can you? Well, so I want to because um, you know the studio's been shut from COVID, so we've been basically closed, and all the artists who would normally have a steady stream of people through the gallery buying their work, like these guys are starving. So, um, so it's pretty tough times. And one of the things I realized that was that you know it's not that people aren't buying stuff during the pandemic; it's just that they're not buying our stuff because we're closed. <laughs> right, and the, and also people aren't leaving the house, so they're they're kind of buying more things they need rather than things they want. Ah, uh, yeah, I, I don't know about the need wants thing, but I, I know they're definitely not buying stuff that requires a physical trip somewhere. Right, you know, um, and you're probably right about the need want split as well. But in this case, I thought, you know, look, we should we should have as our repertoire or in our repertoire a product that you can buy that you can make, you know, in the studio and nobody else makes it and would be really cool. And if, and then you start to think about what that would be. And like glass has been around for 2000 years. Like James, most of the, most of the good ideas are, they've been done. Right. People have done all this stuff and I've never seen this. So part of this is just like, nobody's ever made this. I'm like, who knows? Maybe somebody has, but I've never seen it. I've been looking. Yeah. I've never seen anything like that. And you, and again, it's, it's like you say, 2000 years, it's interesting you know, people always say, even about the internet, oh, it's too late to come up with a new easy business model. But here no! you are. There's always, here you are with with glass that's, again, 2,000, 5,000, whatever, however many thousands of years old, and you just made something completely new that I kind of want to buy one of those right now. <laughs> well, I kind of want to sell you one. So <laughs> I'll get my ass back in there tonight and 
You should put up like an e-com, put up a Shopify store or something. Well, I haven't quite got the design down yet. I haven't quite, I like there are a couple of things that are just not quite right about it yet. Um, so, but when it, I will, believe me. I, and how's the drinking experience? Like, does it, does it's it not bad. You? It's not bad. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a little more thoughtful because you've got these areas where like you can literally have two streams out here. So it, you know, it's yeah. like playing a harmonica. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just, fun. it's, it's, it's gotta be more thoughtful. Otherwise it runs down your shirt. I don't know if anyone's going to embrace this. No, but, but that's interesting because you could argue this is the, this is glass that will make you more mindful. This is a very, uh, uh, mindful sort of glass. Yeah. There's, there's, there's like, I, you know, any marketing slogan that works, I guess I'll have to, to, to tolerate, but just to me, it was something that I wanted. I wanted an object, an everyday object that you couldn't ignore. You know, that wasn't demanding attention, but but was still pulling you in when you know when you used it. It 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 didn't just automatically trigger those worn out processes. I don't know if it's going to work. I'm 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 playing with these things. I'm living with them. I'm drinking out of them, and you know, so far so good. <laughs> That, that when people come to your house, do they do they ask for those glasses or other glasses? I don't have that many. I've got about five. Okay. So oh yeah, I've got a studio full of color. Like the the prototypes, I maybe get one out of ten of these things. They're super huh. hard to make because huh. you're trying to get the glass to collapse, but not completely. So it's um it's it's this exercise in chaos. You're just but, you're trying to you're trying to introduce enough chaos and then freeze it before just totally disintegrates. And has this felt like fulfilling artistically in a way oh God, probably yeah. that you haven't experienced in a oh. while? Like you, you were so bogged down with book and promoting book and then before that business. Well, the writing Fed. the book, yeah, the book took, uh, uh, that was a solid two years of work. Um, the, Fed is, the Fed is always the Fed. The Fed is this, you know, sort of base note of, of activity um, a little bit more these days. But um, yeah, I feel so good getting into the studio and actually getting my hands on stuff and, and working with people who, who well, we got one guy, he's, uh, he's one of the best glass blowers in the country. His name's David Levy. And he's working with me on these things. Um, and when I watch David struggle to do the stuff that like we're trying to do, it makes me feel good. I was like, well, at least like the best guy in the world can't just make these things and I'm the only one who can't. Um, so we're struggling together and it's, it's just a really high level of collaboration. Plus it's a physical object. There's something very satisfying about making a product that has, you know, mass and can break and, you know, like, it's just. Right. As opposed to the ones and zeros, like all, you know, there's all this argument that all the innovation in the past 50 years has come from ones and zeros. And before that, it's come from transportation. And, uh, but here's an example where you're able to just get your hands dirty and innovate. Yeah. And, you know, like Square Stock has, gone through the roof lately and people tell me about it because I don't follow the stock. So people have to call and tell me this. Uh, that makes zero difference in my life. I get, I mean, I'm, I'm like happy, uh, but you know, it's sort of an abstract happy. Um, but this is this visceral. I feel yeah. like when I make something that's good and it actually works, I'm like, oh yeah, you know? So well, that, I like it. Yeah, That's great. Well, I'm glad you showed me. And then um, uh, thank you for coming on the show uh, sure. in short notice. We, I, I contacted you just yesterday, but I am curious about 
the Fed, but also um, uh, I'd like to talk to you about Invisibly, which uh, you were just telling me about before we started. Oh, yeah. Um, maybe, uh, let's start with the Fed. Uh, start with the Fed, okay. <laughs> let's start with the Fed. So, so the Fed's basically said, well, since we last spoke, the whole entire world's turned upside down. The, the coronavirus obviously is still around. The lockdowns are mostly over, but kind of still feel like they're on. The economy seems like it's coming back, but in other ways, it seems worse than ever. <laughs> and inflation seems like it's around, you know, one to one and a half percent. But in other ways, it seems very deflationary, the environment. It's hard yeah. to get a read on it. It feels more like the economy's tilted rather than gone up or down. And so I know the Fed uh, has, you know, stated a goal of having an average of 2% inflation, which is slightly yeah. different than their goal before. What's, what's the issue? Like, is there, is, is there actually deflation now? Like, what's, what's the lay of the land right now? So my take is that we've been in this very, very narrow band of inflation in the U.S., you know, plus or minus uh, 1.0 around you like 1.75%, you know, that's, and, and we haven't gone above really too. So we've been sort of below that, but you know, we've had this sort of target rate, but the target rate has always been um, a cap. And the idea is that, you know, you get to cap and then you take action. Um, and that's sort of silly if you consider that a lot of monetary policy has a huge time lag. And like everyone's like, oh wow, you know the Fed's changing everything. No, not really. <laughs> I mean, I think what's happened is that we've spent so much time now in this sort of low inflation period that we're just becoming more nuanced in the way we think of it and track it. You know, right. so if you sit there and say, oh well, is it okay to exceed a target for a period of time before taking action? Yeah, or 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 or, or why unilaterally rule that out? And so, you know, what I'm looking at at the Fed is the tools that we're using are incredibly powerful um, in, in some ways, and, and, but they, they've got this, this huge time lag. So, so why not adjust your horizon? Um, and then the other thing that I think the Fed has done brilliantly that nobody's talking about is the effective use of buyer of last resort. You know, we've got $2 trillion that we can spend if we need to, to buy securities in markets that are unstable. And I think we have deployed like around a hundred billion of that. Like that's nothing, that's zero, right. that's, that's effectively zero. That rounds to nothing, like a hundred billion dollars from the Fed rounds to zero when you've got $2 trillion of ammunition. But it's like, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, like, it's like nuclear weapons. You have them, therefore you don't need to use them. You know, in this case, the Fed announced that we were going to step in if need be. And therefore, because we said that credibly, we didn't need to. And, and step in to do more than just buy treasury. But the, the, the standard yeah. tool for the Fed is to buy treasury bills. And yeah. then there's various things around that. But but the Fed has been aggressively saying, look, we could go out there and buy not only you know things like municipal bonds and other kinds of state debt, but even corporate, corporate debt. debt. Yeah, sure. And the idea here is that because we'll make a market, we'll make a market poorly. And but I say poorly, we will not be a good deal. Like we'll save you from 
calamity, but we're not going to make you some sort of wild great deal so that you would be much better to go to the market. But because we back up the market, the market says, oh, well, the Fed's got our back. We'll keep functioning. So, so I, wa- I, wa- I want to ask about this. So just, just from basic stuff. So, uh, you know, first off, everybody is always wondering, well, can the Fed keep printing money and uh, there won't be hyperinflation, which sort of ignores the demand side of the supply and demand equation. And we spoke about this last time. You were mentioning that the demand for the U.S. dollar is enormous. Yeah, and it's not. Okay, so here's the thing. Like, you can't take the economics that apply to a human and that, you know, we tend to think of personal debt like government debt. Oh, the government owes a bunch of money. Oh, I owe a bunch of money. It's the same thing. No, it isn't. Like you can't print money, the government can print money. Okay, so there's one big difference. And I did have a friend with a printer once who did, in fact, print twenty dollar bills and use that, but that was a long time ago. Don't don't report me. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Konica Minolta was really a great thing for uh, uh, for folks. And I used to, you know, I used to be on the receiving end because I used to, you know, run bars and skanky places there where those printed things would be uh, indistinguishable from real twenties at night. Yeah, so we'd end back up in the nineties, nasty you know, counterfeit money. Um, so, uh, but that, hey, you know, circle of life, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, you know, you can't sit there and say the U.S. is printing money. I mean, in some sense it is, okay. And in some sense, it all has to be paid back in some way. Um, but if you actually start to precisely define the terms of like what is printing, what is money, like all, all, all that literally, um, it, it gets really complicated. Uh, I'll, give, I'll give you an example. Uh, so we, um, uh, we would normally say that if you're printing money, you're devaluing, right? More of it means it's less valuable. Okay. Well, what if you're printing money makes your currency more valuable because you are saving your economy and therefore people think the dollar is going to be a better store of value than the euro. Right. The demand then goes up for it. Well, the demand is not just US, the demand is worldwide. And you might be stabilizing the US and world economies by essentially printing money. So if demand increases, well, have you really printed more? Right? Because if more people need it and it's going to be sitting in some, you know, Kazakhstani bank, well, yes, like if all that came into the U.S. at once and tried to buy, uh, you know, Oreo cookies, we might have a problem. But that's kind of not how money swirls around. So like, and, 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 and for those of you who are confused by this explanation, good, you should be. This stuff is confusing. I don't understand it. I talked to some really brilliant under- economists who kind of understand it. But like I'm the idiot at the Fed meetings that always ask the crazy questions. But but you know it's it does seem like like let's say you let's say it's quote unquote printed and so out some other door you're borrowing it from China or Kazakhstan or whatever yeah. and but you're 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 using it to buy higher interest rate vehicles than you're borrowing from. So let's say you're borrowing at one percent, but now you're buying corporate debt at four percent you're kind of making money from it. And when, yes. you know, and then you could pay back and keep the profit. And when the, when the money goes back in, you pay the money back, the money's gone now from the system. Like 
it's it's back in the the hands of the government. It doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, we just wipe it off the balance sheet. Like we just unprint it. Right. And now, now is there a multiplier though? Like let's say um, you buy debt and so now uh, banks or companies or whatever start spending money because they're they're relieved of their of their debt. Uh, is there a multiplier meaning uh, you know the economy can grow too fast? Um, like yeah, we have a 15 trillion or 50 trillion dollar uh, economy, right? Or no, that's the world. So 15 no, trillion dollar GDP. I think we're 20 here. Yeah, but yeah, let's say 20. So, so you, let's say you print up a, a trillion and there's a five X multiplier, meaning if I spend a dollar on a newspaper, the newspaper guy buys a sure. coffee, the coffee guy buys a flower. It's, it's $1 of GDP growth of GDP. So we inflated the world by 10%. Yeah. 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 So, so, uh, in, in yeah. good inflation we've stimulated, sorry, stimulated. I'll use right. the, Erectile right. dysfunction analogies. We'll, we'll see, right. So, so we'll see. Would we see like a thirty percent GDP growth in the U.S.? Uh, it depends on how much of that pie we take, I guess. I mean, again, see, this is the problem with this theory is that you know, like if you if you sort of run any of these theories to ground, there's there's nothing wrong with your theory, you know. But like nobody knows. Like I, <laughs> I I'm telling you, like at least nobody I've met. Um, you know, Chris Waller. I I got, I got to put in a plug for Chris. Chris is uh, Trump's nominee to on the FOMC. He's the non-controversial one. Uh -huh. Wonderful guy. Brilliant. Every time Chris explains something, I understand it way better. As a matter of fact, the best thing you can do if you want to understand the Fed is just look up anything Chris Waller has written. It's so clear. He asks good questions and he answers them without jargon. Uh, it's wonderful to hear uh, him explain something. And I talk to Chris about stuff like this and he gives me very thoughtful answers, but but not usually definitive stuff because in in most cases where it gets interesting is when you're in a situation you've never been in before like oh say the one we're in right now <laughs> right so so let's look at like a couple of different potential problems and it seems like with every sort of economic problem it can either be congress that solves it by voting for a stimulus or it can be the fed that solves it using its basket of tools so you know like one problem that people talk about is commercial real estate's going to have an issue and this this stems not only from um offices being abandoned or leases being let go but also this eviction moratorium eventually millions of people are going to have to pay their rent and they're not going to be able to pay it then the landlords are going to be in trouble then the banks might be in trouble and it goes all the way up to the fed so i'm just curious could the fed kill two birds with one stone so can they solve the problems of just kind of give an eviction holiday to renters, landlords, and even banks. And at the same time, this is a tool for increasing inflation because essentially you're giving out free money to everybody down the chain. Uh, you lost me somewhere there. I mean, <laughs> I, I can't, are you saying that the, you're suggesting that the Fed would- The Fed would what, basically buy all the debt related to mortgages, which is all related to rents being collected and then you would basically forgive the debt. Yeah, that to me sounds like you'd have massive adverse selection, like you'd package up all the toxic stuff. Cause I know real estate people and like they're very smart and shrewd and they would just shovel all the crap into one pile, put a bow on it, uh, get Moonies to rate it highly and then pass it on uh, to uh, the bigger sucker. That, 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 that doesn't sound like a good situation. Like I think what sounds like a good situation is some disruption, not total chaos, but some disruption in maybe an inflated market. And maybe we don't need offices. But 
just for the record, I'm building a massive office uh, in St. Louis, like right now. Like I have a, I have a hundred million dollar construction project going on downtown St. Louis. Well, and I think I so. think St. Louis is going to be a, a winner in kind of the the resorting of the cities that's happening right now. So a lot of the first tier so. cities. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you see, yeah. like a lot of the first tier cities are are you know L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, New York City. The people are leaving, and St. Louis, Denver, Austin, Miami, a lot of these Phoenix, a lot of these second tier cities are beginning to boom. So I think this is sort of the tilting of the economy, but where where these major cities are starting to crumble a little bit, but but the beneficiaries are the second tier cities. And and but again, though, I'm thinking, what happens with the you know, yes, some offices are gonna go empty. We're seeing that in in all the major cities. What happens to the commercial real estate companies? Is there going to be like mass bankruptcies in that level? Uh, well, and then the banks that get affected? Maybe. Uh, although I think a lot of rich people own a lot of property. Mm-hmm. So you might just have some, you know, haircuts being taken by the rich. I got no problem with that. Mm-hmm. Um, like I have no problem with commercial real estate getting whacked because it's real estate. Like you, and it's a, you know, if if you're the person that was dumb enough to loan uh, at, you know, 98% leverage or whatever the, you know, uh, whatever the sucker deal you were passed, uh, you deserve to get corrected a little bit. I, I, I don't, I don't know that you want even a super competent central bank stepping into markets. Yeah. You know? I mean, you look just, at... What could happen though? Like, like in New York, the the statistic—I don't know if it's true or not—but they say one out of four people have not paid rent since March, and this is residential now. Yeah. And what's like you try to kind of figure out, like, because we've never, like you said, we've never had like problems at this kind of scale. No. Like those people are not going to be able to pay their rent at the end of this. They they didn't have it to begin with, and they certainly don't have it now. And so that means you know some landlords are wealthy companies others are just mom and pop you know who are renting an apartment or two what what happens in these scenarios where you're, you're we're talking about millions of people uh i don't know i mean that's that, that i i don't know not only do i not know i don't know why anyone would want my opinion but if you want my opinion as somebody who owns some property and also votes on some interest rates um i'm for letting the markets Correct. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. I know that sounds harsh, but like if, if there's an implied guarantee on real estate investment from a central bank, you will have even more crazy behavior. Right. So I don't think we can ever make that guarantee. And if you're long on any one asset class and something happens to that asset class, you're going to suffer badly. And if all your net worth is in commercial real estate right now, well, that might not be good. Um, but I don't know. Uh, I, I, I'm just another guy with an opinion here. I, I kind of see it from both sides. In the long run, you're definitely right. Like let the markets sort themselves out I'm just wondering what happens in the interim. Just like, you know, when we, when we last spoke, uh, the idea was, 
okay, the Fed could keep doing this as long as stimulus is needed. But we see that with everybody locked down in their homes for three, four, five months, unrest starts to happen. You know, some some amount of protesting, but then some amount of chaos hand in hand with that. And without giving a political opinion, it's just yeah, that's yeah. what's been happening. And uh, I wonder if the same thing will happen if suddenly you have millions of people who owe their rent, you know, which they're going to, and then maybe they can survive because they just leave. But then the people who own the property, they go bankrupt. And, 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 and but the property remains. So the building is still standing. Now the question of what, what goes into the building. And I mean, like I'm an artist and I bought my first building, which is 15,000 square feet here in St. Louis for 35,000 bucks. Well, actually, that was my second building, but um, I bought a you get giant. That cheap. What? That's yeah. pretty cheap. Now, it was in a bad part of town. The building was falling down. I had to rebuild it. You know, it pro I probably spent a million dollars over the last 20 years rebuilding this place. And now it's gorgeous. But I got in for 35K. And I set up a business in a crummy neighborhood. It was my glass blowing studio. And that turned into a pretty good business and it's employed a lot of people and it's done a lot of good stuff. And that is a good example of what happens when you can't destroy the asset. So let's say there is a giant correction and I kind of pictured this happening in Manhattan, but it's gonna happen all over the country. Uh, you know, rents are gonna fall and what will happen? Well, people will still need places to live. Uh, people will still want to have places to work, although they may, they may not need them as much now that we're all Zooming and stuff. Right. Um, but still, I'd rather be sitting in your living room where we did our first interview, looking at your awesome you know, artwork and hanging out and feeling all important with that big fluffy microphone. And, you know, like, <laughs> like I, I feel like I'm a schmuck now. You know, I'm sitting at my house. You know? No, 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 no. Your, your house nobody. is fine. <laughs> no, but like, you know, not nearly as cool as your place. And I had to say that, you know, uh, I would want, I'm, a, I'm the sort of guy who'd want to go to an office if, if it was possible right now. Um, but I think a lot of creativity is going to be stimulated by, you know, driving out um, super high rents and maybe driving people out of cities where, you know, the rich and privileged can congregate into places where, you know, just creative folks want to hang out with each other and they can all afford to do so. Because right yeah. now, like if I wanted to move to New York City as an artist, I couldn't. But maybe a year from now, I can. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if it'll be a year or it'll be 10 years because it seems like some wave of bankruptcies has to, or at least some mortgages have to be reworked because they can't charge rent less than their mortgage payments just in case there's another, you know, rent moratorium. No one yeah. wants to get stuck. Yeah, uh, and you know, the people who securitize this stuff are all going to have heartburn and... Uh, I'm okay with that. I mean, you know? a little bit of the, 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 the final end user of the, of that securitization is the 401ks and the pension plans that invest in the, um, hedge funds that do the securitizing. But, you know, I guess, I guess when it's diversified out, maybe it's not, it doesn't affect like CalPERS, you know, that much. I don't know. Well, I mean, okay. So CalPERS is protecting people's retirement and let's say CalPERS takes a 5% whack because they bought too many office buildings. But the living costs for retirees in California dropped by 10% because now all of a sudden it's not as expensive. Yeah, yeah, good point. Okay. You know, I mean, like, 
uh, and, and the other thing is you can't just say, well, look, just because, you know, mutual funds are owned by people and people have retirement funds that we should, you know, juice the market forever because normal people own it. I think a lot of people are not participating in, uh, you know, what Wall Street's doing. And like, at least none of my friends, like at least in the glass studio or, you know, coming in and ask me for stock tips. Yeah. <laughs> they're, right. They're not in that market. They're, they're, you know, ask me for, you know, uh, you know, do I know, do, do I need, do, do I need them to do any work is what they've been asking me lately. Like, can I help you work on a project? And I've been, yeah, it's different. So that, now here's, here's another question, which is, which is similar, but look at these cities now, like New York city, LA, San Francisco, Chicago, clearly their deficits are spiking. There's an exodus of people and capital, which means their tax base is going to go down for, for years, potentially. Is there any, is there any solution where, you know, all these cities are expecting the government to help them in some way, like maybe Congress and the stimulus package, but is this something where the Fed could say, hey, we could buy up Chicago debt and again, kill two birds with one stone, get inflation in the system and, you know, save Chicago, save LA, save San Francisco, or is that like register as a problem? I, I, I again, I don't think the government, I don't think the Fed can be seen as a backstop on any individual asset because it's just going to, like, okay, so let's say we bail out Chicago or New York, okay, hypothetically. Well, what does that tell the mayor of Tuscaloosa who says, oh, well, I've been really running a tight ship here and not employing as many fire people, firefighters as I want, um, but clearly I don't need to because I can't, you know, Tuscaloosa bonds are just fine because the Fed's going to step in just like they did to rescue, uh, you know, Chicago. I don't think you can, I don't think you can offer those guarantees. Right. This is, this is why it seems like it's, it, the economy's tilted. Like there's money from the Fed and from the other stimulus package that's in the economy somewhere, but it's just, it's, it's not in the usual spots anymore. Yeah. It's, it's all weird. And look, I'll be the first to admit that I'm not an expert here. And also I, I spend limited time with the experts, but when I, when I am there, I shut up and listen. And I have not heard any clear idea of where this is all gonna land. You know, I mean, you're, you, you bring up a very good point, which is that there is a huge problem with city spending, especially cities like New York, where their tax base is probably gonna be eroded on half a dozen different levels simultaneously. Right. Um, and then there's going to be, uh, you know, fiscal reckoning and we don't know how that's going to get handled. Absolutely. We don't. And, and, and considering that, and I'm, I'm just playing this out, considering that these yeah. cities are the U S is face to the world. Could this possibly affect foreign demand for the dollar? So people look to New York city as the financial capital of the country. Could people say, Oh my gosh, crime spiking, garbage collectors were all fired, healthcare is down because the hospitals are closing down because of the deficits. The dollar's gonna fall apart next. Well, I don't know. Like, you know, New York garbage collection has never been functional, at least in <laughs> my walking through the piles on the street, like even in the boom times, yeah. So I don't know that we're gonna necessarily scare away um, them because look, world-class cities are world-class cities. And uh, you can argue that the U.S. has at least one. It would be New York City. Uh, you can argue kind of that there's 
San Francisco and maybe LA. And I guess my friends in Chicago would get pissed if I didn't sort of put them in as an also ran. And, and then you got a bunch of other, you know, sort of cool stuff. I'll probably see you in Miami this winter. I'll be down there too. You know, Excellent. It's, it's great, you know, um, but there's a ton of other stuff here that I think represents the strength of the dollar, not just our flagship cities. And like, I'm a New Yorker on my mom's side. She grew up in Yonkers during the depression when my grandfather was a brewmaster and he, I mean, talk about a bad, talk about a bad business. Like he was brewing beer during prohibition for Dutch Schultz, who was like the Al Capone of New York City. And the only reason I found out that after my mother died, my uncle sort of grudgingly told me that, you know, grandpa used to work for the mob, and but not in any like cool thing. Like he was just the guy that made the beer, right? Um, but that's, you know, that was a city that was under terrible strain and stress. Um, and I remember through the 70s, New York was terrifying. Um, and then all of a sudden it became this sort of cool fantastic place for people to live. And I think that's probably going to continue, but it'll, it'll morph from, you know, 2019, I think will be fondly remembered. Um, I, I, I don't know where it's going to go, but I, I don't think you're going to, I don't think you're going to gut out the cultural institutions of New York. Uh, and a lot of the stuff I think, you know, would drive out quarter of the office tenants, probably something interesting will occupy. Yeah. And, and also, again, I, I do think, talent and skill will be decentralized throughout the rest of the country now. And it'll, so you don't, if you, if you're a young person in Phoenix, you no longer have to move to one of the first tier cities to have opportunity. Opportunity will start to flow all, all around just, just from the flight of, of people leaving these cities. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's, that's not a new trend. I mean, like, remember the laser printer when the laser printer showed up and all of a sudden you could make your words look professional. You know, before the, before the laser printer, it was like you were either a schmuck who had a typewriter or a pen, or you were a serious company that had the ability to, you know, create type. You could typeset. And then all of a sudden, the laser printer leveled that field. Like, we've always had this leveling, like, constantly going on, you know. Um, you know, cloud computing, right? Now I can spin up massive infrastructure uh, that I couldn't do, you know, without standing up my own servers. And having my own air conditioning and dedicated power, you know, I, I used to, you know, build server farms and like, it's brutal, it's horrible. And I'm glad to, you know, make it Amazon's problem now. So I think there's this continual um, uh, replenishing of the tools. And, you know, we've got some great tools. We're using one of them right now, um, but we're going to get more. And I think the creative people are still going to want to get together. Yeah. And in terms of... Um uh, what, what do you think would happen if the Fed did nothing right now? Like if basically if the Fed let interest rates just float with the market? Well, I mean, so let's, con let's contrast doing nothing with saying nothing and doing nothing. Okay, so if the Fed went offline and said, like if, you know, Jay just like walks into FOMC and does a mic drop, he's like, you know, pal out, you know, walks out of the room. That's probably not good, right? You don't, but, but the people who are in charge are hyper-rational, very thoughtful, and, um, and actually 
wonderful people. They're like a good set. Like it's fun to hang out with these folks. So, uh, and their hearts are in the right place. And they're doing the right things, in my opinion. That itself has a very calming effect. Now, let's draw the line there. Let's say that's all they were allowed to do. Let's, all, so let's say we secretly take away their tools and we just allow them to pretend that they have the tools. That would probably work. They probably would not have to do anything for a long time. Conversely, if the guarantee wasn't there, if we didn't trust them, no matter how they tweak the tools, it's not going to be good because markets can panic in nanoseconds now. And the trust is more important. So you really, like if the Fed did nothing because they chose to do nothing, that would be okay. If they were somehow instantly powerless or we thought they were crazy, that would be a disaster. So, so what keeps the Fed up at night? Like I would think some fear that the dollar might not have the demand that it, it's historically had, at least in the past decade or so. I, I honestly don't know. I'm not, I'm not privy to those conversations. Like if, if there is some sort of looming problem, don't see it. Hmm. I mean, that's good to know. Now, but look, I'm a deputy chair of one of 12 Federal Reserve banks. Like they don't call me first. Like I, they bring me in for comic relief That's <laughs> at, 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 at some of the meetings, you know, uh, I, I, I'm just dead. I'm, I'm just not in the room. I in the room where that, where that happens. Well, I, I would think from the vantage point. So, so let's look at it from the vantage point of square. So square is involved with, you know, a significant percentage of, you know, the payment processing of, of yeah. us businesses. How's, how's that looking? in terms of like your, your, the macro view of US business? So macro view from Square's perspective is super interesting because um, you know, we tend to skew towards small businesses and individuals. And um, there has been a lot of pain. A lot of companies have just gone away. But the ones that are surviving, and I would say the majority are surviving, are actually quickly adapting. Hmm. Um, and the speed at which they're adapting was amazing. There was a part, uh, a point during April where Square was releasing a new product every day. And these were for all of our customers that whose businesses was changing every day. So, you know, you had a restaurant, well, your restaurant's now closed, but now you've got carryout. Well, carryout's a different business. So you have to do scheduling and you have to remote ordering and you have to have contactless payments like that. And, and so we were literally shipping a product on a 24 hour cycle. Um, and that was just to keep up with the adaptations that our customers were making. Hmm. So it was really heartening to see that and to see the speed at which it happened. I thought it was really good. So, um, and, and then I, I'm not allowed to report our numbers, um, but if you look at our last quarterly report, like they're way up. Like the, the numbers that we are allowed to talk about, which I am ironically not allowed to talk about, but the ones that have been published, if you look at them, you will see that the U.S. economy, particularly small businesses, are surprisingly resilient. Oh, well, that's good, good to news. know as yeah. well. Yeah. So now you were telling me earlier about uh, this new product you have, Invisibly, which is very good at predicting elections. What's the model it uses to predict uh, elections? Yeah. So a quick sh quick shout on Invisibly. I founded a company um, with the intent of trying to save journalism's economics. Because if you know anything, you know, of course you do this because you're in the business. Um, uh, the economics of content is effectively broken 
primarily because consumers can't pay more for good stuff and less for bad stuff. In other words, the, ra- the reason the economy works is you and I, when we go out and spend money, are signaling. So if you move out in New York and move to Tuscaloosa, that's a vote, right? You're not going to spend your money over here. And that's going in- and, to, and those votes get tallied. Like if you buy a $20 hamburger, you're saying, make more things like this. You buy a $2 hamburger or a bean burger because you're vegan now, like those votes get tallied and that's what the economy is. And your ability to pay more for good stuff and less for crap is your vote. That's not possible with media. Media is either subscription, where it's a buffet, all you can eat, or it's advertising supported, which is like basically saying, hey, every hot dog in Manhattan costs five bucks. Every, if, we, if we said every meal in Manhattan costs five bucks, you'd say, oh, great, I'll go out and get a great meal tonight. And my answer is, no, you wouldn't, because all the good places would close instantly, and they would be replaced by places whose business model is to create any crap that is worth five bucks. But since they can never earn more than five bucks, they would never put in any extra effort for high quality. And that's effectively what programmatic advertising has done to the media ecosystem. That's why the newspapers are dying. It's not that we don't want quality. It's not that we don't want journalism. It's not that we don't want all this good stuff. It's that we have no mechanism to pay for it. Because if I pay for something through my eyeballs, I'm monetized by the amount of time I've spent watching. So that's like me charging you for food per calorie. You know, a dollar per kilocalorie is what food costs. And how good do you think food would be? No. I I guess on subscription services, I can make my vote a little bit by choosing, oh, I'm going to get HBO Max instead of Netflix. Yes. Yes, you can vote for um, the Vegas buffet of your choice. You know, eat at the Rio, eat at Caesars, eat at, uh, you know, Texas Roadhouse. But you're still voting for a, it's a very gross sort of, yeah, and the problem is I might want to watch one show at Netflix and one show at HBO, and then I got to yep. get both services. Yeah. So anyway, there's a theoretical solution for this that uh, I kind of, I don't know that I came up with it, but I certainly recognized it a couple couple of years ago and started to build this company called Invisibly to do this. And the point was to give consumers control. And I won't go into all the trials of Invisibly, but we came out with our first product. It's not a consumer-facing product. It's an advertising product. Um, but one of the things that we can do is because we allow the consumer to feel protected and in control, um, they feel very safe. And it turns out that if people feel safe, they will honestly answer questions. Hmm. And um, one of the things that I get when I travel sometimes to California is people who are closet conservatives coming up to me. And they will confess because they know I'm from Missouri. Missouri is a red state. Now, I happen to be sort of politically, well, I'm neutral now. But were it not for that, I'd be a little bit more on the blue side. But the point is, just because I'm from a conservative state, they feel like they can talk to me. Hmm. And they tell me stuff. And I usually try to respond in a neutral manner. Um, But we developed this tech that... For some reason or another, people feel safe answering questions. So when we ask them questions about who they're going to vote for, they honestly answer them. We've trotted this out in three of the primaries. It has called the final vote within a point each time. This is unheard of. Right, particularly since the polls were so off in a lot of the Democratic races. Yeah. So um, I was... How do you make the consumers feel safe? Like, what does that mean? 
So part of it's how we ask the questions, part of it's the questions we ask, and part of it's where we ask the questions. So we meet them where they are on sites that they're visiting. Um, these are not Google and Facebook because they know they're listening on Google and Facebook. Um, but these are, you know, like sites that have recipes and, you know, the hot rod sites and, you know, you know, fuzzy animals and, you know, crazy conspiracy theories. Like it's, it's like the gamut of content mm. just without judging Like you take aggregate all this massive amounts of content and without, without, without exercising a bias over what people should or shouldn't be reading. And then you ask some questions that in the context of that content, uh, don't interrupt the content. So in other words, we don't, we don't pop up a survey box and say, answer the survey and then pop you out of what you're reading to some other place. Um, we were surprised at how accurately this is predicting uh, elections. Now, James, I, I have to be completely candid. I can't tell you why it works. Mm. Like, and, and I was, I was, it was funny. I was talking to a guy who was a, who was an oncologist the other day because we we're I'm doing some, I'm funding this cancer research company, and nobody knows, understands the mechanism of action for this drug that we're developing. Like they, like the drug works, but we don't know why it works. So the medical community is all scratching their heads because they like to know why. And this very learned oncologist said, look, we just think we know why stuff works. We have a theory that everybody accepts, but a lot of the stuff that you think of is, you know, having this, you know, method of act or mechanism of action is, is something different. So the bottom line is Invisibly has a survey tool. It's working. We don't know why. It's been deadly accurate. It's three for three on calling elections in 2020. Um, so we thought, well, what the hell? Let's try it out. Um, Trump's ahead. Do, do you know, like, what's, like, state by state? Like, is the electoral I college it? I can tell you, Trump is, uh, well, I don't, I don't have it, I don't have it in front of me, and I really do want to sort of break it in the, in the post, if they'll, if, if, if they'll let me have the ink, I want to, I want to break it, because I think, sure. I think the world needs to know that we're about to repeat 2016. Um, is it even is, bigger? Like, do you see, is it like unusually? No, it's, 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 it's very close. According to our information, God, I should get this. I, I, I'm, so I'm doing this from memory and it's, my memory is two days old. Um, but the last I saw, Biden is not the clear victor. And he's behind in some of the swing states where I look at the traditional polls and they got Biden up by eight points. It is not, that our, our data does not say that. Our data says that Biden is potentially in trouble and we are potentially looking at a repeat of 2016. And so, so when you contact like the Republicans and the Democrats, do they buy data from you or like how so are they making use of this? It's really interesting. Um, I, would ex I would have expected the Republicans to be the Democrats and the Democrats from Republic. I, I'm getting, I, my biases are being uh, challenged. <laughs> the Republicans have been super open-minded to the data. Okay, so this is the party that I associate with climate change deniers. Like I, I, I happen to think that people who deny climate change tend to vote Republican more. So my personal bias is, oh, people who sort of deny science will tend to be more Republican. The people who we've spoken to the Republican operatives, they're, they're, they're on it. They're really good. They're, they're good with the data. They're using this. They're, they're asking us really intelligent questions. They're, they're like on it. They're really good. The Democrats, on the other hand, I've reached out to some Democrats. They're like, you guys ought to know what the Republicans are doing just to keep the thing fair. They've been very smug. 
they've been like, we're up in the, like, they, 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 oh, no problem. Someone will get back to, you know, that whole sort of blow off that you get. Um, it was sort of shocking because I figured the Democrats were going to be more, you know, sort of data driven and, um, you know, just sort of tuned into the fact that, well, they really mispredicted the last election and that might happen again. But there seems to be a lot of denial on that side. So I, you know, the, the party that I would normally associate with, you know, sort of ignoring science is super scientific. And the party that I would normally associate with being, you know, more, you know, data driven is being less data driven. And so I, one of my biases has now been, you know, corrected. I'm, I'm, I'm now more politically neutral. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I was wrong. So when do you think you guys will release this data? Uh, hopefully this week. So, um, uh, so we are, so invisibly.com, we do put up polls and we do share our data. Um, I just want people to have accurate measurements. Like if, if, if the population is going to do something and we're trying to survey in advance to determine what's, what the will of the people are, we've got a great tool and it's, it's been working. So I'm hoping that some good will come out of this, you know, uh, measuring sentiment and being able to predict seems, it seems like a good tool to have. So. It's kind of funny how prediction markets wouldn't pick up on this underlying data, you know, bef- before um, before the polls do, or you know, before. You know, g- given that uh, this is real information, it's just kind of hidden. It seems like prediction markets are usually good ways to to get the real information. I think they are. I mean, I there were some studies after 2016 that some of the um, uh, some of the odds makers were more accurate than some of the pollsters. But again, I don't find I don't follow gambling very well, so I don't know how that world works. Yeah, no, I, I I'm not seeing it right now. I'm seeing the prediction markets not, uh, you know, not really changing over the past month. It's been it's been kind of unusual, actually. Oh, maybe I should pick up some cash. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely some arbitrages. I've seen some weird weird things in those markets, and you know, but all the all this reminds me too of you know in in your book, the innovation stack. I've thought about this book constantly, and I even uh, quote your your book in my next book. Thank uh, you. Which is this idea that if you want to create, and I'm gonna I'm gonna um, just destroy the way you're thinking about this, probably. But if if you want to create a billion dollar company, one possible model is to service the bottom third of an industry. Yes, essentially what you did with Square, and kind of build your innovation stack from from there. And, yeah. you know, you'll encounter problems because there's there's a reason why this this population might never have been served before. So you'll 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 solve these problems and build a stronger company as a result. And I'm you know, and that and that's also to some extent a, a real beautiful classic way of that disruption works. Like a company gets you know their, their highest paying customers sort of demand higher and higher services and more and more expensive services. Yep. And so eventually, a company. Uh, gets disrupted from underneath, like you know, Visa and Mastercard to some extent got disrupted uh, by Square. Some to some extent, and those guys are. Have you looked at them lately? They're very, very strong. They've come. They've 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 hundred xed. I mean, th- maybe not hundred x, but yeah. Well, well, you opened at up least fifty x. You opened up the door for them to all these new businesses. Well, yes, that's what, I mean, that's what Square did. Like it did not disrupt Visa and MasterCard. They're way stronger now than when we started. Yeah, so I guess who did yeah. you, you disrupted the banks maybe? That's no, in- we didn't disrupt, we didn't disrupt Beans. Like what we did was we included more people. Yeah. 
so this is this is actually one of the things that uh, that I study in the book, which is that disruption, in fact, for companies with innovation stacks, doesn't occur um, in any in any meaningful way. In other words, um, so Herd Kelleher beat beat this into my head, um, which is that when Southwest entered a new market, all the other carriers increased their traffic in that market at their current rates. So you know, Southwest would you know United would have two flights to uh, you know. Phoenix and Southwest would enter the Phoenix market and all of a sudden United would have four flights to Phoenix and they were full. They all of a sudden just the, the massive amount of uplift uh, that Southwest was creating actually lifted their competitors as well. That's interesting because like Southwest is a, a, an interesting example against like classic disruption theory that, you know, eventually you would expect companies like Southwest or McDonald's to uh, you know, upgrade their services until there was a competitor could disrupt from beneath again. And that just never happened with Southwest. They always kept like to to their core. They always kept to the you know low paying customers and and they have. Although recently, so since Herb left, there's been a long period where Southwest has been increasing their fares. They're no longer the low cost carrier in most markets. Mm -hmm. They've abandoned low price. Um, and I track in the book how that's affected their dominance of the market. Southwest under Herb Kelleher had one competitor that entered the market, JetBlue, right, and survived. Everybody else, and there were I think fifty. <laughs> I mean, it's a massive number. Um, they all died. Yeah, remember and the People's Express? Was it? Was oh it? yes, yeah. I almost remember the guy's name, but there were there were like dozens of them. Yeah, you know, like just dozens of them. Uh, you know, just this shrapnel pile of aluminum twisted and burning uh, from all these airlines. And there were, um, there was one survivor that was JetBlue. And the only reason there was JetBlue was because Southwest ignored the New York market for 25 years. Yeah. They basically took the biggest travel market in the United States and said, oh, we're not going to serve it. Like, you know, unless you consider Islip like New York, which they didn't. So that one exception is in stark contrast to what's happened to Southwest since Herb left and they abandoned low price. Um, you've now got half a dozen carriers, uh, Virgin America, uh, which was sold, but it was successfully sold. I mean, Virgin was making money when it was sold. Um, Spirit, um, uh, Frontier, uh, Allegiant. I mean, they're, they're now six new airlines in Southwest's face uh, that are surviving. You know, and and then and then I'm always curious. What do you think about like a company like Apple? Didn't seem to worry about being disrupted from below. They kept. How did they avoid being disrupted from below as they you know increased prices and you know introduced you know more expensive iPhones and laptops and so on? I I don't really understand the full dynamics of of Apple. I mean, they started with a hugely powerful innovation stack. So if you take a look at what they've done across the spectrum of hardware and software, and then just design on top of that. Um, then the power of the, um, you know, I, of iTunes and the Apple Store and the App Store. And, you know, th there are probably seven or eight really powerful phenomenon inf impacting Apple. One of them's an innovation stack. They absolutely had that. Um, but then you've got this, um, uh, you've got what's, you know, what we'd call a marketplace lock-in, um, which is uh, 
hugely powerful. Even more powerful is uh, viral growth, which it turns out, you know, they, one of the things that keeps people from buying iPhones, and I don't know because I don't have an iPhone, because I, I carry an Android because I want to be more like the people around me. Um, so I carry Android because like the guys in my world can't afford iPhones. Um, but my iPhone friends tell me that they will continue to buy Apple products just so that their text messages appear in a different color. And I don't know if it's blue or green. You know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, yeah. Like if you're like if you're not in the you're if you're not in the Apple Club, your texts look. They basically right. say, "Jim's poor. Jim doesn't <laughs> get it." Like my tech, like the the back. I don't, supposedly this is a thing, um, but like that's lock in. Like they've got they've got lock in at so many levels, um, and then they do continue to come out with great products. Although, I still question what the next sort of breakthrough product is. It's not the Apple Watch. Right. Yeah, yeah, I don't know either. And I, I always think that they're going to kind of flatten in terms of innovation, but it just keeps going. So, I mean, uh, it hasn't, hasn't slowed down yet. So, yeah. And I deep, deep respect for Apple. They're, they've been really cool. Well, well, Jim, thank you so much again for, uh, I had all these questions about the Fed. You cleared up my questions once again. On, <laughs> I, you know, I hope not because no, I'm totally did. confused. I you say I, you're confused, but but no, you, I just you put you they, in the club of you know you don't feel bad when I've, I've forgiven your sins. You know, you know. We, <laughs> no, it, it's it, I've I've been trying to wrap my head around all these things because it's so it's so complicated at every level. But I think each time you know I understand a little bit more what's going on, and, I, and hopefully the, the listeners do as well. And and I think there's some comfort in what you're saying as well that. Uh, you know, I, I do get worried that the length of this crisis, it keeps going in more and more chaotic ways, but there's no, nothing to really do about that. And so I, other than financial backstop somehow. So, so let me give you a couple pieces of good news just to end on. Uh, number one, um, and I know this personally, cause I gave a bunch of money to Washington university's medical school to work on a vaccine. Uh, we have a fantastic coronavirus vaccine that has passed mouse and uh, primate trials and is knocking the virus out. Like it makes you non-contagious. And it's not even a shot, it's uh, a nasal spray. Not that stupid Q-tip that like makes you forget what your last name is. Um, but like the, uh, just a, like a spritz in the nose. Wow. So now- um, How, how does it work? Does it, put, does it spray like a, yeah. a dead version of the virus in your nose? It's It's, no, it's, um, uh, they target one of the, oh God, ask me for biochemistry. <laughs> um, it's, it's, uh, a, it's, it's the spike protein on the SARS-CoV-2 virus and they've, oh God, I, I, I'll just, I'll just piss off the people who know if I try to answer the question. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm a dumb check. I gave them a bunch of money. Um, just it's as got a some, it's got some characteristics it's, of it's, the vaccine. I could, I could. I could look this up. Um, unfortunately, I don't. And, and the last time I had to answer this question, I had a cheat sheet in front of me with all the proper pronunciations. Um, but it is a, uh, uh, here's what's interesting. The scientists who were telling me about this in the first meeting were very, you know, they were scientists. They were guarded in their words. They were uh, conservative in their aspirations. They said, well, we have this research and we think this could be potential. The second meeting, they were like, this shit works. 
like, I mean, they were like high, fi- they were so, I mean, for scientists again, <laughs> they, they were excited with the results. So, so the good news is, this is one of about 160 vaccine candidates. And I've seen one up close and personal and the people who worked on it here in St. Louis, and it's going to work unless it turns out to have some weird side effect in humans, which they got to test. So we got to get past all that, but knocking out the virus check. Okay. So, so that's good news. And what do you think the timing is on that? Uh, early 2021. Okay. I mean, if I had to guess, I'd say March, but I'm not allowed to guess cause I'm not in the labs. So, um, but that would be my guess. So we'll have a whole year of pandemic and then, you know, who knows? Um, but the good news is like this, this, at least one that works. And my guess is there are probably 20 that are better than this, just stuff that I don't know about, you know? So there's, there's, there's good hope for a vaccine at some point. Um, uh, the, the, the second piece of good news uh, is that downturns, for some reason, historically correlate with great opportunities for entrepreneurs. Um, and I think it's probably because when things are chaotic, people accept new ideas faster. So if you're sitting on a new idea, if you're sitting on something that's actually better, um, like a crazy glass that nobody would ever want to, you know, consider normally because everything's working too well. Um, the glass is probably a bad example because it doesn't solve a problem. It creates a problem. Um, but one of the hardest things to do is to get your new idea noticed. And during times of crises, when everyone's in a panic, we are way more accepting of new ideas. So it's yeah. a good time if you've got one. Yeah. And also I think in a situation like this, A, there's more problems, so more problems to solve. Yes. And B, a lot of people are hiding under the chair and, you know, I think there's probably less entrepreneurs at work. Uh, although I don't know that for sure. It's just a guess. Yeah, I don't know. Be interesting I, to measure, but, but we'll see the results. I think you're going to see this as a, I think you're going to see a creative uh, bloom come from this time. We'll see it in years to come, but I, this, these are historically times that are great for entrepreneurs. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. This is, the, this is the first time in a long time I've been excited about entrepreneurship. So I, I've definitely seen that happening. And that's good to have the, the good news. So, but, but you had a, a lot of good news. I do agree that, you know, there's going to be opportunity dispersed throughout the whole country. Yeah, that's you, good. You made me feel a little more comfortable about how things are going to shake up and people will survive. And, you know, hopefully the Fed achieves its goal of to average 2% inflation without going. And I... Uh, agree that that the likelihood of superinflation is probably really minimal just because there's so much innovation still happening. There's so much, where else will people put the dollar? Uh, I can't even imagine there's anything else other than the dollar for for foreign investors. Uh, not right now. I mean, they're, 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 if, if, if there's a viable alternative, it has not shown itself. Could, could, could something like Bitcoin or gold ever, you know, have too much demand? Uh, I doubt. No, we're not going to go back to gold. Gold's insane. Um, uh, Bitcoin and the cryptos are, you know, sort of mathematically dangerous. Um, they're dangerous in a couple of areas. I, I and, and I support them up to a point, but I also say, look, we have not figured out one of the biggest variables, which is how governments will respond to losing control of their currencies. 
Yeah, and I guess uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I don't want to say anything that I don't know, but there's various issues with if 51 percent of oh yeah the, the yeah the 51 percent attacks and like what happens when uh when quantum computing comes in yeah like you know? how you solve cryptography then yeah like does cryptography get weird under quantum computing and the answer is i don't know enough math to answer that question but i can at least ask it and say that it's not a clear it's not a, it's not a clearly solved problem people smarter than i will solve it but some of those people will solve it and then Secretly. use it to exploit the system <laughs> right. until yeah um, so there's all that. Um, my big question with crypto, and nobody's ever answered it, is what happens when governments who respond slowly and respond awkwardly and respond brutally uh, decide that they do not want to allow people to have anonymous forms of payment? Right. So that, but then you get into something like how do government how do governments respond to the internet? So in in crypto's case it might be some country like argentina their currency falls apart the population switches to crypto and that kind of triggers a domino on other countries and then you know countries just have to sort of tag along to to participate but i don't i don't know how that works in a country like the us where you know the currency is very much tied to how we collect taxes yeah and you know the other thing is you want governments in control when things go wrong like, yeah. I would argue that what a central bank like the Fed is doing right now is preventing a world crisis of tremendous proportions. Um, you know, even though we got a health crisis, we've largely avoided, like, the calamity of a massive, you know, worldwide depression. And that's partially and perhaps largely due to actions of a central bank. And that's because they control the currency. And if you take that control out of the hands of people, um, you know, like there are planes that are completely autonomous now. They can take off and land themselves. And I don't want to fly in one. <laughs> right. I want a pilot. Yet. I want a guy who's, who's bored most of the time. As a matter of fact, I hope he's bored the entire flight. Huh. That's what I want. Well, hopefully we get back to boring times. So yes. 2020 has definitely been a little too interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the less interesting times. All right, James. Well, hope, hopefully I see you. Somewhere this uh, in in reality when we can actually get in a room. Yeah, together. either in in New York or or I'll you know when I'm in New York, let me know when you're in Miami and we'll we'll, we'll collide at some point. So cool, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks a lot, Thanks. Jim. I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, man. Bye bye. 